Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. In August of 1963, a quarter of a million people gathered on a national mall wedged between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial to join Dr. King in a peaceful protest demanding equal rights for all Americans. Our executive producer, Paul Woodhall, sat down with legendary civil and women's rights activist Eleanor Holmes Norton, the congressional representative for the District of Columbia, about her key role in organizing the March on Washington. 1963 was a very big year for you, so set the stage for us. Where were you in your studies, your activism, in your career before you were called up to work on the March on Washington? Well, it's lucky it was in the summer because I was at home uh, from school, and I had been greatly involved in the civil rights movement. I was a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, along with John Lewis, who I first met there and not as a member of Congress. Uh, and the March on Washington is something that students and, for that matter, civil rights activists had been calling for for a long time. And the reason was there was no legislation whatsoever, uh, at least no national legislation, that protected African Americans against discrimination of any kind. And then you received the call. Was it from Bayard Rustin? Is that right? Uh, it was from Bayard Rustin, and I should explain that I regard myself, and I think he would have regarded me as a mentee of Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin was one of the few, shall we call them, adults who had been involved in nonviolent passive resistance, which is what people like me and John Lewis uh, were doing at the time, and who had been an activist. He had been involved in the first call for a march on Washington by A. Philip Randolph, who was head of the sleeping car porters, had a real base. Uh, When he called for that march in 1941, Franklin Roosevelt met his demands without the march uh, through an executive order. It was an executive order that said in industries involved in the war or in federal matters, you could not discriminate. That was the beginning of uh, civil rights laws. And how did Bayard find you? Uh, when I say I was a mentee of Bayard, I, I must tell you that in uh, in vacations, uh, I was often in New York. And a group of students often met in Bayard's apartment to hear Bayard essentially educate us. This was a man of enormous intellectual background. So, so to explain why activism, what activism had in fact achieved, and why activism was important to achieve any large end. So, you know, we sat at his feet 
to hear from really the only adult we knew of who shared our view and actually had done something. He'd been arrested himself uh, as a very young man going south on, on a bus in interstate commerce. Even at that time, you were not supposed to discriminate because it is interstate commerce. He was a veteran, and we knew we had much to learn from him and did. So what challenges did you face as part of the organization to create the March on Washington? And you were hoping to get, what, 100,000 people maybe if it was a big success? Rather than 250,000 or so, which is what we got, yes. Uh, I was actually a paid organizer for the March on Washington. I remember that brownstone in Harlem from which... We organized the march. Now, when I say paid, I I have to tell you what I did. Essentially, we were organizing buses, answering phones when people, who after all had never been to a mass march, answering phones as to where to go, how to catch a bus. And moreover, in New York, I spoke at large gatherings to explain what we were trying to do. Not surprisingly, there were many people who were opposed to the March on Washington. Uh, Strom Thurmond said this, and I'd like to get your reaction to it. Quote, the Negroes in this country own more refrigerators and more automobiles than they do in any other country. They are better fed. They are better clothed. They have better houses here than any other country in the world. No one is deprived of freedom that I know about. And mentioning Strom Thurmond, you are talking about the archetypical racist leader in the Senate. And he was the leader in opposing the march on Washington. He picked out by Rustin because of his sexual orientation. In other words, no hold stop. He made repeated speeches on the Senate floor against the march. If anybody tried to work on people against the march, uh, it was Strom Thurmond. Now, you have quoted some of the mildest, milder portions of what he had to say. Now, that, that backfired on him, right? It surely backfired on him. When you make people angry, <laughs> watch out for how they will react. I saw a political cartoon which showed lines and lines of African-Americans lined up to come to Washington, D.C., but the city itself was portrayed as a powder keg. So, obviously, there were concerns about violence and chaos, but... When I saw that picture, all I could think of was the inherent racism baked into it. Because the power structure, and that's what what we call them, of the day had never experienced a march. They overreacted. Kennedy, for example, initially opposed the march. The so-called Big Ten, those were six civil rights leaders and added to them some uh, labor leaders, met with Kennedy to assure them of how they were going to keep peace at the march. He ultimately did in, c- come out for the march. So the problem that the authorities feared were those who would react. And we said it's your job to make sure that they're kept under control. And in fact, the few that did show up to disrupt were quickly dispersed. And of course, the uh, final speaker of the day was Martin Luther King Jr., And he delivered what we now call the I Have a Dream speech. But it was Mahalia Jackson who told Dr. King, Martin, tell them about the dream. Uh, This I Had a Dream theme was one of his themes throughout his speeches across the South. Therefore, there were uh, people who had heard him speak who wanted to hear that theme 
on the national setting at the mall. And that's what she was saying when you say, tell him about the dream, Martin. He wanted to make sure that that was not left out of his speech, and he sure didn't leave it out. The three broadcast networks at the time, ABC, CBS, and NBC, interrupted their regular coverage to broadcast the March on Washington. And it was also seen globally on the Telstar satellite. Did you and the other organizers ever imagine that the March on Washington was going to be a global event? I I have to be candid. We weren't even sure how many people would come. We didn't see how the media could avoid, if not broadcasting, making sure that the world understood. We did not have any vision that there would be any kind of worldwide coverage from outside of the United States. But I can tell you, standing as I was on the Lincoln Memorial, uh, I saw a sight that, as far as I was concerned then and perhaps even now, uh, from the Lincoln Memorial, as far back as the eye could see, were people. In other words, I couldn't see over the horizon what the end was of the crowd that had gathered. You can imagine how that made us feel, something we could never have predicted, did not predict, did not want to over-predict. All we knew was y'all come, and they surely did. Today, we call it the March on Washington, but it had a longer title. It was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom was a compromise title. There were some who just wanted to talk about civil rights in the legal sense. Uh, But Byatt Rustin, A. Philip Randolph, and many of the labor leaders took the position that you can have all the freedom you want to have, but unless there is economic Uh, equality, you don't have freedom. And to allay that controversy, uh, again, in the spirit of the march, uh, you've got freedom in there and you got jobs in there. And jobs was uh, taken to mean the the economic freedom uh, that blacks had to have. And freedom, of course, was the civil rights legislation that blacks were calling for. Eleanor Holmes Norton, the pioneering civil and women's rights activist, and the non-voting congressional representative for the District of Columbia. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, The church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state, and never its tool. We're going to hear a conversation between the Reverend Jim Wallace, the founder of the faith-based social justice group Sojourners, and the host of the podcast, The Soul of the Nation, and Reclaiming Jesus Now and the executive director of Sojourners, the Reverend Adam Taylor. The reverends will discuss Dr. King's views of the intersection of religion and politics. Fundamentalism in all our traditions is a perversion of religion for the sake of power when religion wants to be the master of the state, to push doctrine and belief out through political power, to force people to accept what religious leaders believe. 
We see that in all of our traditions, Christian, Jewish, and Islamic. Uh, no, we shouldn't be the master of the state. We should not be the ones who control the state and force our beliefs on others. People are afraid of that, and they should be. We're the conscience, meaning to speak the truth to power about what's wrong and what should be changed. I love that distinction the king makes. Yeah, this is a quote that, as you know, Jim, I've shared many times, whether it's in trainings with churches about how they can put their faith into action and, and practice prophetic witness, or with churches that are very skeptical about being engaged in politics. I just want to give a little context about this actual quote. So King may have shared some version of this in other settings, but the kind of signature place that he said this quote is in a sermon called A Knock at Midnight, one of his best sermons. It's in a book that I know you've read and I I really covet and treasure, which is Strength to Love. But I went back to revisit it, and I actually wish that I had also memorized the second part of the quote, which is, if the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. If the church does not participate actively in the struggle for peace and for economic and racial justice, it will forfeit the loyalties of millions and cause men everywhere to say that it has atrophied its will. And what I love about the quote and now this longer version of the quote is that King is really challenging the very vocation of the church. Yes, the church does need to be about pastoral care. The church does need to be about evangelism. But if the church isn't also about discipleship toward justice, it is not doing the very work of the church. And what we're seeing increasingly, particularly in our United States context, is that so many young people are leaving, they're fleeing the church because they are not seeing a church that is standing for justice, that is doing the work of justice. And so evangelism and the work of justice are increasingly tied together now. Adam, when you talk about the trainings you're doing in churches, you often speak of how churches think they're doing justice when they're doing social service. And as important as service is, and often it's the doorway, the gateway, to seeing why things are the way they are, uh, it's not justice. Yeah, exactly right. And just putting this in the context of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, I, I really fear that our nation has reduced the holiday to a day of service. Mm-hmm. And I believe in service. I'm actually a part sure. of a fraternity whose motto is, first of all, service to all, we shall transcend all. Mm-hmm. But Dr. King understood that no amount of service was going to dismantle Jim Crow segregation. No amount of service was going to transform our nation's laws to enable African-Americans the right to vote. And now we see that right being suppressed in states all across this country. We're seeing a rollback of the freedom and right to vote in our literally right in front of us right now. And so I think this commitment to justice is essential because at its heart, justice requires us to get to root causes, to understand the systems of oppression and of marginalization that are creating the very need, the very suffering that we are called to address. And it requires us to restore right relationship between ourselves and people, ultimately ourselves in creation, which is particularly needed right now in light of the ongoing and escalating crisis of climate change. And so this, this commitment to justice is directly in line with Dr. King's ethic and is directly in line with the Christian ethic and is something that We really need to help churches better understand how to embrace it. The key, though, is you don't have to embrace a commitment to justice and then simply endorse a particular ideological perspective or a certain partisan agenda. 
we should be challenging all parties to remain true to core biblical values and principles that put the marginalized, the vulnerable, the least of these at the very center of our concern. Now, we can disagree as Christians about some of the best ways to ultimately care for the vulnerable, the weak, and the marginalized in our midst, but they should be the very center of our attention. And right now, they are so often at the periphery of our priorities, not at the center. You know, uh, both of us often do um, addresses or sermons on the MLK holiday, and I remember often people accuse those services and those churches of bringing politics into faith uh, because King raised these issues of justice. It's actually not that way at all. It's bringing faith into politics because King uh, was clear on what you're saying now. There's a difference in partisan and prophetic. King wasn't saying just take sides. He did hold both sides accountable. But what's prophetic? Prophetic is to go deeper. Don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. What does the Bible say about justice, about strangers, refugees, about how the use of racial bigotry and racial division is contrary, antithetical to the gospel of Jesus? King would say that. And King also said that uh, the enemy often isn't the uh, the evil, overt, racist people, but the people who won't say anything. Mm. They're moderates. Right. They're they're happy with service, and they don't want to get involved in raising larger issues because they'll appear partisan. Often when you raise larger issues, you're attacked as being partisan. But there's a real difference in being prophetic and in being partisan. We have to hold all sides accountable, and that's what King was trying to do with the conscience of the state, mm-hmm. not one side or the other. And I think there's another dimension of being the conscious of the state that is important and sometimes the hardest, which is it requires courage. It requires sacrifice. It requires often saying the unpopular thing. And, you know, there's, there's been a lot of kind of attention that I've noticed on social media about the degree to which King was quite unpopular around the time that he was killed. I mean, his disapproval rating was extremely high. Now, of course, now as we look back, his whole message and ministry and leadership has been very much redeemed, and he's now one of the most well-regarded, respected Americans of all time. But he was willing to speak out, as you know, against the Vietnam War. He was willing to make economic justice the next frontier of the civil rights struggle, which is why he was killed supporting sanitation workers who were fighting for dignity and a living wage in Memphis right before he was killed. And so he was taking on causes that were deeply divisive and unpopular. And so there's a way in which being in the conscience of the state often requires us to take very unpopular positions and be willing to stick to what our core principles are. And I think that's you know something that we need to also emphasize in the context of what it means to be faithfully followers of Christ. He's looked back on in ways that kind of want to tame him. Yeah, that's right. So making MLK Day a day of service is a way of taming Dr. King. In his last speech, he talked about the giant triplets of injustice. And it was racism, it was militarism and the war in Vietnam in particular, and materialism, what he meant by that is the inequalities in our economic system, in capitalism. So he was challenging the system, but we like to go back to 1963, where he talked about freedom and, and civil rights. Of, that was the foundation, but then he went further to critique systems, and we're afraid of critiquing systems still. So to turn MLK Day into a day of just social service is a way of trying to tame and silence the prophetic critique 
of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. of the systems in this country. That's right. And I think with this, this quote of being the conscience, you can't be the conscience and be on the sidelines, or as you said before, to be silent. And there's still many churches that would prefer to choose the path of least resistance or the, the kind of safe path of essentially being quiet, of being apolitical. The challenge with that is that the gospel itself has profound political implications. Following Christ means getting in the way of injustice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who led the Confessing Church movement. He spoke out courageously against the rise of Nazi Germany and ultimately lost his life as a martyr in that process. I think Bonhoeffer once said that to be silent is to essentially be taking a stand you know, in favor of the status quo. And so one of the things that you know, we work on through Sojourners, but also the many partners, is to try to equip and inspire the church to figure out how they can speak out and speak up about issues of justice in a way that demonstrates the conscience, that doesn't get entangled in the partisanship and the polarization that we see around us, but is able to kind of unite members of their churches around core principles. And, you know, this certainly isn't easy to do, but it has, absolutely has to be done. Otherwise, the church will kind of lose that prophetic edge and it will not be able to serve as a conscience that we need. Crisis really is, is there a we going forward now in this country or is it all us versus them? King could see that, that we're becoming a diverse, inclusive nation. So how do we move forward and become a we? The Reverends Jim Wallace and Adam Taylor from the Social Justice Advocacy Group, Sojourners. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. This is the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. Just a little over a year ago, an anonymous donor gave the National Park Service Foundation $1.9 million to purchase a small two-story home in Atlanta, Georgia, on Auburn Avenue. CBS News' Michelle Miller was at the birthplace of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. More than 700,000 people come here every single year to visit the home where the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was born. This was his living room. That's a picture of his grandparents. Now, the National Parks Foundation purchased this home for $1.9 million thanks to an anonymous donor who's not so anonymous anymore. Welcome to the King Birth Home. The descendants of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. have held down this homestead for generations. All the children were born in here? All the children. Now they're entrusting the birthplace of the civil rights icon to the National Park Service. This is Mr. Robert Frederick Smith. Thanks to the once anonymous donor, Robert F. Smith. This is almost a full circle moment for you. My mother you know, took me to the march in Washington. I was nine months old. Of course, I don't remember any of it, but I remember the everyday of our growing up and the lessons that her and my father, you know, brought into the home. He first toured the King home a few months ago. I'll tell you what struck me was actually the dining room table, the dynamic of family together. 
And that's a chance where the families can interact and engage, talk about the topics that are relevant to us as people. The ethic of love, he really got that here. We were lucky enough to experience a rare multi-generational family reunion in that very same room, albeit with museum prop cuisine. Everybody sat at dinner every night? Everybody came to dinner at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. Why? Why? I mean, I guess it was a tradition. This was an opportunity for my father, her mother, um, Naomi's husband, to be able to talk as children and even ask questions. And that was just unheard of at that time. The house purchase was made through contributions from the Fund 2 Foundation, which Smith founded. The organization has donated more than $40 million to preserve African-American culture through the national parks, which includes buying the homes of Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, and Booker T. Washington. Smith also personally gifted $20 million to the National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. Sounds like, Mr. Mr. Smith, you're on a mission. I am. I truly am. I think a big part of that mission is to educate the world as to what African-Americans have contributed in America and educate Americans as to what our contributions have led to and so many great things that make America the unique place it is on the planet. The Park Service will not only preserve two of King's former Atlanta homes, it will record and share family memories, including contributions from everyone at this table. We've been through a lot. Here's a preview. What don't people know about Dr. King that they should? This is one thing I tell young people. Dr. King was a C student at Morehouse. Really? He got a C in public speaking. He got a C in preaching at Crozier. Mm-hmm. It tells you that you don't allow grades and people's judgments even to define who you are and what you're going to contribute to this world. And he just continued to push forward and did not let it discourage him. This is a demonstration of progress that is definitely being made. He really was not puffed up, right? right? He wasn't um, socially awkward, right? He was um, unpretentious, honest, and plain. I think that they will, you know, and the family will find a wonderful, you know, opportunity as we, as we finish what I call the digitization efforts to experience their life. Though the King family agree handing over their ancestral home was the right thing to do, actually doing it wasn't an easy decision. It took me a minute right? because we were raised to understand ownership. I was. Mm -hmm. So I had to get in my head, wait a minute, this is not how we need to expend our energy. Mm -hmm. Because I was initially like, no, I don't want to transfer, sell my mother's home. When you think about what Mr. Robert Smith has done, what does that mean to you in putting your old family home back together? To me, it means it won't be lost. I mean, the tangible property is important and will always be important. Um, But it's also important that more and more people know the true stories. And Dr. King's daughter, Bernice, told me she's already gone through all of her personal effects. Those will be digitized, downloaded into a database so that people from anywhere in the world can have their very own 3D experience. Dr. King's birth home sits just three blocks from the Ebenezer Baptist Church, where Dr. King Sr. and later Dr. King Jr. would preach on Sunday. The National Park Service Foundation calls the home a, quote, 
priceless part of our nation's history. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. Bill Plant was a CBS News correspondent for more than 50 years. In the 60s, Plant covered the civil rights movement in Mississippi and Alabama, including Dr. Martin Luther King's historic march from Selma to Montgomery. CBSN's Rena Ninen talked with Plant about being an eyewitness to civil rights history in his coverage of the life and tragic death of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In 1968, CBS News correspondent Bill Plant was in Memphis to report on King's death. Just at 8 this morning, Dr. Martin Luther King's body was brought to Lyon State for an hour. Hundreds paid their respects during that brief hour. They were old. They were dressed for work. They were almost all black. And for some of them, the experience was just too much. Reverend Ralph Abernathy, Dr. King's closest friend in life. Even forevermore, I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The plane had come from Atlanta bearing Mrs. King. There were police and National Guardsmen at the airport with rifles and shotguns and riot sticks to hold back the crowd of newsmen and spectators. After some delay, the casket was placed aboard for the last journey home to Atlanta. And late today, a judge in Memphis approved the march which Martin Luther King had planned to lead next Monday. Bill Plant, CBS News, Memphis. And he joins us now from Washington. Bill, I want to ask you about your coverage of the assassination. What do you remember from that day? Rena, I remember that it was a day of really extreme, extreme emotions. We learned about it here in Chicago uh, and flew down there to Memphis. And the first thing we did, and this is seared in my memory, was go to the uh, funeral home where Dr. King's body lay. And the undertaker was overcome completely with emotion. And he insisted on showing us uh, Dr. King's body, which was already in a casket. Uh, he showed us how he had lovingly repaired the area in the neck and, and uh, cheek where the bullet had gone in. I will never forget that. But then after that, we went, uh, to, and, we went and talked to people in the street uh, who could not believe what had happened either. There was some confusion about whether there had been somebody seen doing the shooting or whether uh, they had not seen a person run away. And so the whole thing was very 
unsure and unsteady. And at the same time, this whole rioting broke out all over the country. There were uh, riots in many, in like a hundred cities, and uh, including, including Chicago, New York, Washington, and it became pretty serious stuff. So it was a very, very emotional day and night. For those of us who didn't live through it, Bill, you talk about the rioting, the images we're seeing now, just how significant his death was and, and the aftermath that followed. You often don't forget about the women of history, in particular his wife, Bill, Coretta Scott King. She reacted to this devastating loss of, of her husband and the father of her children. What do you remember most about those days after? She was a beacon of hope. In her grief, which was obvious, she was strong. And she, well, I don't remember exactly how she put it, but what she said was that she would live on, keep up the ideals of her husband. And she had her, her children who were then very small with her, and it was a heartbreaking scene to behold. Just incredible to hear you say what, what a woman of courage she was. Uh, you also interviewed Dr. King in Selma, Alabama. I want to play a bit of that interview for you. Have all the activities of the past weeks in Selma come to uh, fruition now? Is this the, the grand climax? I would say this and uh, its culmination in the march on the Capitol uh, on Thursday. Uh, this is certainly the high moment and the high point in the struggle in Alabama. Now, this does not mean that we will uh, hold up our work in the Black Belt. We will continue. But I would think that this whole experience, this march, which will culminate in Montgomery on Thursday, represents a real high point in our movement. Bill, why Selma? Why choose that city to make a stand for voting rights? Well, you know, first of all, that interview took place at the bottom of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where three weeks earlier, the line of marchers, not including Dr. King, had been so seriously beaten and tear-gassed. But, you know, they chose Selma for strategic reasons. They were invited there by a local minister, but they accepted partly because they knew that the local sheriff was in total opposition and that they would face a determined opposition to voter registration there, and that it would, the publicity for this would help further the cause. So Selma was not an accidental choice. Mm. And sure enough, the sheriff there, Jim Clark, was as mean as he could be. Uh, he uh, upheld the voting rights, or rather the voting privilege of the, of the county by uh, in, ensuring that they could do things like uh, literacy tests, or even guessing the number of beans in a jar in order to be able to register to vote, which sounds incredibly silly, but yeah. was true. Mm. You know, in January, Bill, you of 1966, you spoke to Dr. King about using his message of nonviolence to help urban youth in the north of the country, particularly Chicago. Do you think he succeeded in that goal? Chicago was very difficult. He came there in January 66. Uh, I had just been transferred there as well. And we talked... Uh, he had hoped to bring the principles of nonviolence to work to help people in the urban ghettos. But Chicago's uh, leadership, uh, the power structure there, really kind of outfoxed him. And Dr. King said when he, when he marched in several marches around the Chicago area that he had never seen hate like that uh, in the South. And I can understand why. It was vicious. Uh, it was economically based as well as racially based. And uh, he, was, he, he was hit and injured more than once during those marches. And what happened was, uh, this started in January by August. He had uh, made a deal with the city and the realtors to uh, expand fair housing uh, and to finance it. But the city never lived up to it. They reneged on it, mm. and he was very disappointed.
You know, Bill, what stands out to me as someone who didn't live through this, uh, from what I've read in history, the last night of his death, he made this extemporaneous speech where he says, and I have seen the promised land. I might not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to that promised land. Fifty years later, what do you make of where this nation has come? Those prophetic words were could not have been more to the point that night. We may not get there. I may not get there, but we will get there. But they haven't gotten there yet. We as a society haven't gotten there yet. So much has been accomplished in many ways, but so much remains to be done. The amount of economic and educational inequality in this country is still far, far higher than you would expect after 50 years of the voting rights movement and the freedom movement. Bill, you look at politics today and just how polarized it is because you covered Dr. King, you interviewed him, you were there on the ground. What do you think he'd make of America today? I think he would see it as a case of something that needs to continue to heal because he was all about healing. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Day holiday special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Day holiday special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous speech is known as the I Have a Dream speech. He delivered it on August 28, 1963 at the March on Washington. In 2013, I reported a story for CBS Sunday Morning about a man who owns that historic speech. We met on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial 50 years after the historic march. That all men are created equal. It took place right here in this designated spot. As I look back now, uh, I can feel a little nervousness inside my body, a a, a little tremor, because uh, I I certainly view it a lot differently than I did then. Fifty years ago, George Raveling was a 26-year-old former college basketball star. That freedom rang from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Who was not only one of a quarter million people to witness Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s historic speech, but as a last-minute volunteer, he had a coveted spot near the podium. How far away from Dr. King were you standing? I was to the left of Dr. King. I would suggest probably seven or eight security people away. From every mountainside. Just having a front row seat to such a momentous occasion is a memory worth talking about. But George Raveling's story really begins with what happened after the speech. Free at last, free at last. So with the place going berserk, what did you do when he finished? Well, people started to stand, and I have no idea why. I walked over, and he was just folding the paper, and I said, Dr. King, can I have that copy of the speech? Did he hesitate? And, and, and he, he turned and handed it to me. Just as he did, a rabbi on the other side came up to congratulate him, and it was over. And it happened that quick. That's right. George Raveling was handed one of the greatest speeches in American history by Martin Luther King himself. And so this is the the actual speech. You can see the date, and you can see that it it was typewritten. George Raveling, who was hired as a volunteer security guard by organizers back then, simply tucked the speech away in a book for several years. He forgot about it as he embarked on a successful career as a basketball coach that took him to Washington State, the University of Iowa, and USC. Eventually, Raveling framed the type document and has kept it in a bank vault for over 35 years. In 2013, he told me that he will never try to profit from it because he considers himself 
the guardian of the speech. The speech belongs to America. The speech belongs to black folks. It, it doesn't belong to me. And it, w- it would be sacrilegious of me to try to sell it or, or to profit. Even though it. you've been offered as much as three and a half million dollars for that speech, you won't sell it. No, because uh, I would like to think somewhere out there, my mom and dad and my grandma taught me better than that. And, and, and everything in life, you can't equate in money. Thank God Almighty. Today, George Raveling is 82 years old. He works as a director for Nike. In 2015, he was inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. And of that historic day in August of 1963, he simply says, I have no idea why I asked Dr. King for the speech, but I'm sure glad I did. I'm James Brown, and this is the Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. The sudden, brutal assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th, 1968, shocked the nation. Here is Walter Cronkite reporting on King's death on the CBS Evening News. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. Police, who have been keeping a close watch over the Nobel Peace Prize winner because of Memphis' turbulent racial situation, were on the scene almost immediately. They rushed the 39-year-old Negro leader to a hospital where he died of a bullet wound in the neck. Police said they found a high-powered hunting rifle about a block from the hotel, but it was not immediately identified as the murder weapon. Mayor Henry Loeb has reinstated the dusk-to-dawn curfew he imposed on the city last week when a march led by Dr. King erupted in violence. Governor Buford Ellington has called out 4,000 National Guardsmen. And police report that the murder has touched off sporadic acts of violence in a Negro section of the city. In a nationwide television address, President Johnson expressed the nation's shock. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lived by nonviolence. I pray that his family can find comfort in the memory of all he tried to do for the land he loved so well. I have just uh, conveyed the sympathy of Ms. Johnson myself to his widow, Mrs. King. I know that every American of goodwill joins me in mourning the death of this outstanding leader and in praying for peace and understanding throughout this land. We can achieve nothing by lawlessness and divisiveness among the American people. It's only by joining together and only by working together can we continue to move toward equality 
and fulfillment for all of our people. I hope that all Americans tonight will search their hearts as they ponder this most tragic incident. I have canceled my plans for the evening. I am postponing my trip to Hawaii until tomorrow. Dr. King had returned to Memphis only yesterday, determined to prove that he could lead a peaceful mass march in support of striking sanitation workers, most of whom are Negroes. At a federal court hearing today, the city tried to make permanent an injunction against the march. Police Director Frank Holeman testified that he had inside information that the Ku Klux Klan planned a countermarch. In his words, I fear for the safety of the citizens of Memphis. It could be worse than Watts or worse than Detroit. Attorneys for Dr. King countered with a nine-point plan which they contended would prevent more rioting. Dr. King had this to say last night about the situation in Memphis. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. There was shock in Harlem tonight when word of Dr. King's murder reached the nation's largest Negro community. Men, women, and children poured into the streets. They appeared dazed. Many were crying. A young Negro said, Dr. King didn't really have to go back to Memphis. Maybe he wanted to prove something. Well, maybe he did. Dr. King, the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, a leading exponent of nonviolence, had often risked danger, and he often said he would be willing to die for his cause. The only way we can really achieve freedom is to somehow conquer the fear of death. But if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. Deep down in our nonviolent creed is the conviction that there are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they're worth dying for. And if a man happens to be 36 years old as I happen to be, and some great truth stands before the door of his life, some great opportunity to stand up for that which is right and that which is just, and he refuses to stand up because... He wants to live a little longer, and he's afraid his home will get bombed, or he's afraid that he will lose his job, or he's afraid that he will get shot or beat down by state troopers. He may go on and live until he's 80, but he's just as dead as 36 as he would be at 80, and the cessation of breathing in his life is merely the belated announcement of an earlier death of the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> 
He died. A man dies when he refuses to stand up for that which is right. A man dies when he refuses to stand up for justice. A man dies when he refuses to take a stand for that which is true. So we're going to stand up right here amid horses. We're going to stand up right here in Alabama amid the billy clubs. We're going to stand up right here in Alabama amid police dogs if they have them. We're going to stand up amid tear gas. We're going to stand up amid anything that they can muster up, letting the world know that we are determined to be free. Dr. King won his first important civil rights victory in Alabama when he led the famed Montgomery bus boycott in 1956. His campaign led to integrated seating on city buses in the deep south city, and that, possibly more than any other feat, added new fuel to the surging civil rights movement in the 1950s and beyond. And now for an on-the-scene story of what happened in Memphis tonight, here is Russ Hodge, the news director of WREC-TV. Memphis is a confused and shocked city tonight. No one can believe what has happened. It's been just a little over an hour since Dr. Martin Luther King died from an assassin's bullet. King was shocked as he stood on the balcony in front of room 306 in the Lorraine Hotel. He was alone. His aides were in the room behind him. Dr. King was rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital emergency room. He died at 7 o'clock Central Standard Time from a gunshot wound in the neck. Police recovered what is believed to be the murder weapon, a Browning rifle with a scope sight. Reverend Andrew Young, King's top lieutenant, was at the hospital awaiting word and described the shooting. We were at the Torch Motel, and we were getting ready to go to dinner at Reverend Kyle's house, and we were waiting for Dr. King to get ready. And as, as he came out of his room on the edge of the balcony, he was shot. And we thought a firecrack had gone on. Most of us were downstairs on the lower level. And we immediately ran up and saw that he'd been pretty badly wounded and sent for the ambulance and the police and everybody. Where was he? This is Russ Hodge, WREC-TV in Memphis. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was pronounced dead at the St. Joseph Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee at 7.05 p.m. Central Time. Dr. King was just 39 years old. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. The impact of Dr. King's life on our nation and the world is profound and immeasurable. But even though it is difficult to quantify the enduring legacy of Dr. King, each of us can personally testify to the ways in which Dr. King has touched our lives. We will hear from former Secretary of State Colin Powell. I didn't know Dr. King, but what he did and what he did for me and what he did for us uh, changed my life. Former United States Attorney General Loretta Lynch. He, more than anyone, knew how hard the task was he had set himself, trying to change the culture of a country that was based on not just slavery, but inequality that had been baked into law. United States Senator Kamala Harris. So many who, in their 20s, had the courage to 
speak about the ideals of our country in an environment where they were exposed to physical harm, to intimidation, to hate, and ultimately for Dr. King, death. And basketball superstar, author, and activist Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. What he means to America is very profound because uh, we're still trying to uh, get to the point where we have achieved all of the things that he envisioned when he said we shall overcome. As they speak of the enduring legacy of Dr. King, Secretary Colin Powell starts his personal narrative in 1958 when he first became a member of the military. I came into the Army at a time when segregation was still in the land, although the Army had integrated. But we had this dichotomy between being on an Army post where I was open and being in Columbus, Georgia, where I was prejudiced where people threw me out of a hamburger joint uh, after I came back from my first tour in Vietnam and had been injured. And all I wanted was a hamburger and they wouldn't serve me. But it was Dr. King and his efforts beginning from the 1955 period, the Montgomery bus boycott, all the way through his death in 1968. It was his efforts that not only freed blacks, it freed, freed Americans, it freed whites. It took a burden off the white people of the United States and took a burden off the black people. So it was something he did for all of America. And that's what made his contribution so significant. And even though I couldn't participate in that because I was an active duty officer going to Vietnam twice during that period and also serving elsewhere, I followed it. Every time I went to Vietnam, I left my wife and infant children back in Birmingham, Alabama. And in 1963, Birmingham, Alabama was not a very nice place. Had riots, Bull Connor and his dogs and my father-in-law spent his time guarding my family while I was in Vietnam serving the nation. And all that changed. And the way that was made for me um, was built to a large extent by what Dr. King did and by his great sacrifice. The whole nation was carrying the burden of uh, discrimination and Jim Crowism. It was holding blacks down, but it was also holding whites down. They knew better. They knew this was wrong. They knew that uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, Abraham Lincoln, what he did, the Civil War, they knew that was the way to go. But for many years after that, uh, throughout the rest of that century, blacks were again subjected. It was slaves once again, even if there was not legal slavery. And so the story I always like to tell is the hamburger joint I got thrown out of uh, after I came back from Vietnam and was looking for a place for my family to live. I just went in for a hamburger. I knew I was in a segregated city and she wouldn't serve me. But I went back to that same hamburger joint on July 4th, 1964, right after the Civil Rights Accommodation Act had been signed, and I asked for my hamburger, and they said, yes, sir, and they handed me my hamburger. She didn't want to discriminate against me, and we removed that burden off of her. As a former U.S. Attorney General, Loretta Lynch understands the incredible challenges we face trying to achieve Dr. King's vision for America but she also sees great promise in our fellow citizens. Dr. King's legacy is one of action. It's action motivated by courage and most of all by love. He was a man of great faith and he believed not just in the ideals of the country, but also the spirit of people to make those ideals a reality. He, more than anyone, knew how hard the task was he had set himself, trying to change the culture of a country that was based on not just slavery, but inequality that had been baked into law. This was a heavy lift, and he had tremendous faith that he could do it. We can look at that today, at the problems we're facing, and see that no matter how insurmountable they seem, you can start 
with one action, and people will join you. People of goodwill and faith will come together, and they are coming together to continue this legacy. I think that we, we always, however, have backlash. Whenever we have great progress, you will see the pendulum swing back in many ways. You'll see fear taking over. You'll see that distrust of change taking over. But then, you know, people who are affected by that will realize their own strength and they will push the needle forward again. I think the people that we're seeing now emerge as student leaders, in 50 years we're going to be revering them and looking back at how they have brought this country further along the road to equality. And I'm looking forward to that. I can't wait to see what these young people are doing. Senator Kamala Harris recalls crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday and the appreciation it sparked in her for the courage of Dr. King. I was uh, with John Lewis crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma and recalling Dr. King's leadership, John Lewis's leadership, so many who in their 20s had the courage to speak about the ideals of our country in an environment where they were exposed to physical harm, to intimidation, to hate, and ultimately for Dr. King, death. And um, to reflect on one of the greatest leaders of our country, um, it is to think about someone who had the vision to know what we can be, even if we hadn't achieved it at the point when he lived. He was aspirational, but he was also a realist. He understood that those words we spoke in 1776 have meaning. We are all and should be treated as equals. He had the knowledge and I think deep faith to, to believe that we would hold true to the ideals that were behind the principles that were the founding of our country, the, the, the Constitution of the United States. My dream is that we live to achieve Dr. King's purpose, and that includes equality. That is both about racial justice and it is about economic justice. It is about all people being treated equally under the law and in society. One of the most important things that we can do at this moment in time is remember leaders like Dr. King who, um, who asked us to look in a mirror and, and think about who we are as a country. I believe that when we look in the mirror, we will agree that we are a great country, flawed though we may be but we have to fight for the best of who we are. And that's, that's what Dr. King, I think, wanted us to do, which is ask each of us, are we really fighting for the best of who we are? The legendary Kareem Abdul-Jabbar speaks of the time he met and interviewed Dr. King. When I met Dr. King, I was uh, involved in a summer mentoring program, and I was in a journalism workshop. And at that time, Dr. King had been named uh, the year previous. He was named Man of the Year by Time Magazine. So everywhere he went, the press followed him. So he addressed the people who were taking part in the program I was involved in, the, the mentoring program. He addressed all of the participants. It was about two or 300 kids uh, in Harlem. And he uh, told them that uh, what they were trying to do to make Harlem a, a better place by finding out what was wrong and trying to work on those issues, that was going to be uh, something that bore really serious fruit. So uh, he, he, he spoke to us, and then after the uh, event, the press interviewed him, and as a member of the press, I, they gave me press credentials, and I covered the event like I was with the press corps. So it was, you know, the very first person I interviewed 
as a journalist was Dr. King. Wow. <laughs> you know, when somebody like that touches your life in that way, it, it, it has a profound effect. And it enabled me to uh, get more behind what he was doing and how he was doing it. Because, you know, there was a, a debate going on as to, you know, was his approach better or were other more militant approaches better? And uh, really the answer was that all people who were concerned about the issues needed to come together and uh, deal with the issues and work out all the other stuff later. We, we, we found that out the hard way. But, uh, you know, Dr. King was a leader in all of that. So I, I think uh, what he means to America is very profound because uh, we're still trying to uh, get to the point where we have achieved all of the things that he envisioned when he said, we shall overcome. I had heard a lot about the, uh, the monument to Dr. King in uh, Washington, D.C., but, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine it, even from the, the photographs that you might see of it beforehand. But it's magnificent, you know, because uh, it shows him just, to me, he is a colossus, uh, you know, in terms of what he stood for and the moral certainty of his vision. It, it, it all, it's all there, you know, and just very, uh, very well stated. I, I think it's a, it's, it's a beautiful monument and uh, people should appreciate it. The Martin Luther King Memorial, mentioned by Kareem, is one of the top five destinations in Washington, D.C., and is visited by more than three million people per year, an enduring symbol of Dr. King's lasting legacy. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. This is the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. James Baldwin remains a towering figure of American literature whose observations about Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement have been prescient about the progress and the obstacles the American Civil Rights Movement has experienced since the 60s. Van Oren Newkirk II is an American journalist and staff writer for The Atlantic who writes on politics, race, and health care policy. He spoke with our producer, Paul Woodhull, about Baldwin's observations. Van, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. You wrote an article for The Atlantic with a somewhat provocative title, The Whitewashing of King's Assassination. Tell us what drove you to do the research on this article and, and to create it. Well, when I was working on uh, the MLK special issue for The Atlantic, I, it involved doing a lot of research about King, about the things he really believed, about the true circumstances of his life and then of his death. And what kept coming up for me was I had this idea in my mind of course, everybody says the, the civil rights movement kind of unofficially ended with his death. Uh, there's a sense that it was all kind of like kumbaya, that it happened, that we got the Voting Rights Act. And even me, as, as, a, as, a, as a black man who is the son of a black historian, that is kind of the version of events that I absorbed just from popular culture. But doing the research, looking at all the facts, looking at what America was like, in 1968 especially, it brought me to a new conclusion, which was that 
His assassination, yeah, it was a random doing of a, of a random assassin, uh, and it wasn't uh, part of a larger conspiracy, but it was it occurred in America where there are lots of people who probably wished King was assassinated, where there are lots of people who had believed uh, that he was the source of discord in America, where there were polls, Gallup polls, uh, for people saying that he was the one who was causing racial tensions, that maybe he should just drop the whole civil rights project. And it brought me to a new understanding of the movement, of the reason we get a Nixon right after the civil rights movement, of the reason why so many of the things we think, like voting rights or like mass incarceration, why they not only persisted after 1960s, but were actually intensified in some ways. And in your article, you reference uh, James Baldwin. Let's first establish who James Baldwin was in terms of the American consciousness uh, in the in the 60s. Well, James Baldwin, especially in the period around when um, King's late career, around when he was assassinated, he was maybe the most revered writer in America. He certainly was, you know, the moral voice in the press, in his books, in his memoirs of the civil rights movement of the era. And he kind of, uh, he was the guy who was writing, especially with regards to MLK, one of the early literary voices to kind of become pessimistic about the project, to look at it and see no end possible but a violent one, uh, who saw the long, hot summers developing in the mid-60s and saying, this will not basically end until the reaction that we see coming. So he was the one, you know, he said in uh, 1957, he, he called King prophetic. He, in 61, seven years before King was assassinated, he said there was a dangerous road before King. And, uh, you know, he talked about the responsibility, perhaps the mortal responsibility of leading folks down the path. And I think he was almost prophetic in that way. But King himself also spoke of a white backlash. King uh, was one of the people who popularized the term in the first place. Uh, After 1964, after the Civil Rights Act, there was a widespread uh, assumption that white voters who would back Kennedy would not vote for Lyndon B. Johnson in the next election. Uh, And that's because... Well, that's because they saw the civil rights gains and they had been told uh, that, you know, this was maybe just about buses, that this was just about folks in the South down there. And then it becomes clear that this is not just about Southern backwardness. It's not just about uh, some bigots hitting black folks with clubs or or spraying them with, with hoses. It's about where your kid goes to school. It's about whether the emergency room wards you're going to be in are going to be able to have black people in them or black physicians even. Uh, and they had been told that a lot of this stuff was a zero-sum game. And I guess lots of white folks were assumed to be okay with it so long as it was those folks down there, oh, no, they're ask- black folks are asking for much more than that, and it's going to come directly from you and the power you have. And that's the fear that they would vote like that. That's where the idea of white backlash came from. Coming up, we will continue with our conversation with Van Newkirk of The Atlantic. I'm James Brown, and this is the Martin Luther King Day holiday special from the CBS Audio Network.
Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. We've been talking with Van Newkirk from The Atlantic about the literary great James Baldwin and his commentary on the death of Martin Luther King and its effect on the civil rights movement in America. So when the Voting Rights Act was passed, uh, it wasn't like, okay, all done, problem solved. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Uh, well, no, it's you see it in King's own career. He goes up to Chicago. He tries to lead, you know, tries to basically do the same things he's done in the South, but fighting against housing discrimination in Chicago. And he is roundly rejected by the greater populace of Chicago, the white population of Chicago. The same folks who might have looked on TV a couple years earlier and said, oh, yeah, you know, Selma is, is wrong. They, they should let those folks vote. Now, when it comes to the two things that still are proven to make folks very conservative, housing and education, when it comes to asking, to demanding that those things be equitable, you see uh, voters across the country, maybe maybe people who voted uh, for broadly for civil rights, who were considered themselves in King's Corner, now they start looking like, oh, I didn't know that's what you wanted. And there were also uh, more demonstrable and extreme reactions besides the uh, that uh, sort of hesitance by people who perhaps supported oh, yeah. King before, right? And t- can you chronicle a couple of those incidents or movements? Yeah. So in, in 1966, in, in during that Chicago campaign, you think about the folks against King as, you know, the, the standard Klan type racist. You look at the pictures of uh, King was hit with a rock uh, in the violent counter-protest from white folks in Chicago. When you look at the pictures, it's not just folks in Klan robes. There's people who have swastikas on. on. The the, the Nazis are out fighting against him. The actual visibility, the, the, the existence of the American Nazi Party becomes sort of is predicated on white backlash after the Voting Rights Act. So we think, you know, in World War II, we have defeated the Nazis, but actually... You see the American Nazi Party become a standard bearer for global Nazism in direct response to what King was doing, to the civil rights movement. And this is what Baldwin had predicted. This is what Baldwin predicted. He talked about, you know, he said what was happening in neighborhoods in the inner city where you have a a confluence of poverty where you have a confluent, concentrated poverty, where you have the slums that are built. So you have a, a combination of a, of a housing uh, segregation issue, of a poverty issue, of an education segregation issue. You have all these things combining in black rage. And he said that was a powder keg. But I think actually on the other side, there was also a powder keg. There was white folks, nice white folks, who lived on the, in the suburbs there, who had built the cages that black people were trying to escape from and who were not going to go gently into the good night. The assessment that uh, racism was, you know, inherent uh, in a lot of a lot of the incidents we're seeing across the country is backed by actually a, a government commission that had been created to study the issue. Yeah, well, so the uh, the Kerner Commission that comes during after uh, the riots in Detroit, it essentially it's not a commission of of woke liberals. It is a commission of lots of standard conservatives of, of business, uh, conservative Democrat types. It, it's, a, it's a group of people who were not predisposed to going into the ghetto and saying, you know, the black folks, black folks are right. But what they came away with was one of the main conditions for creating the riots was the fact that in the media, uh, black people were portrayed 
uh, with strong bias, that there were no black folks in the media, that essentially uh, the conditions of the inner city have become intolerable. You saw this, again, you know, mainstream, even conservative-leaning group basically blames the state of American racism for racial unrest. And we even ignore that report, essentially, in, in the next decade. So at this time, King is also going beyond civil rights. He's expanding his activism to the Vietnam War, to poverty, to homelessness. Was he taking his eye off the ball? I don't. If you ask, if you if you look at his papers and his work, if you talk to the people around him, you know, lots of them were saying, "Hey, chill out on the Vietnam stuff. Maybe you know." We can try to find a way to address anti-poverty works that doesn't make you look like a socialist. But if you talk to King, if, if, if you talk to folks who know him, if you read his work, he didn't view that stuff as a deviation. He viewed it as a natural extension of a nonviolence for him that had gone from being a tactical philosophy to a way he lived his life and saw the world. And he believed there would be no civil rights without ending poverty. He thought there couldn't be, you couldn't fulfill the promise of voting rights if black folks still lived hand to mouth in in Alabama, Mississippi, if they didn't have health insurance. He demanded universal health care. He was one of the first, actually, um, in his freedom budget on the national scene to demand what we now would consider single payer. Uh, He was on the front lines uh, talking about why we should be out of the Vietnam War, using language now that we would consider to not be so controversial if we think about stuff like Iraq and and Afghanistan. He he was ahead of his time on those things. And he viewed it actually in a a way that is now pretty widely accepted uh, in, in modern times, which is civil rights doesn't end with, or civil rights and human rights don't end with giving people the ability to vote. You have to give them power over their lives. They have to be able to affect the actual uh, shape of this democracy and be able to live happy, peaceful lives. I'd like to now go to James Baldwin 10 years after the death of King. Uh, he looked back and he, he made an assessment of his life and his legacy. Can, can you talk a little bit about that essay that he wrote? New York Times. James Baldwin looks back... It's important to think about James Baldwin's life, actually, in the context of this. He follows the thread that we talk about right now, which is he becomes more and more cynical about the project working. He becomes a guy who is doom and gloom. And actually, lots of Americans, even lots of black Americans, look at him as as sort of the angry old man now in 1978. And he looks back at this man of, of King's life and death and... He talks about how much effort, how much uh, blood went into uh, trying to change America. And he makes an assessment of Americans. He says it's, and I'm actually going to read the quote. He says, this is not the land of the free. It's only very unwillingly and sporadically the home of the brave. And all that can be said for the bulk of our politicians is that if they are no worse than they were, they are certainly no better. So we have built this idea in the past 50 years that the civil rights movement was a success, that all the racist folks, the bigots, bowed down before the unassailable rightness of nonviolent protest. But you look in 
even in that time, even just 10 years later, you had Baldwin looking back on it and saying, things may be better. You know, we're not going to dispute that kids are going to integrated schools now or things are different. But also, you really look at the hearts of folks. You look at what their impulses are. If you look at if there's any opportunities to dial this thing back, they probably will. You think about the fact that most schools in the North were more integrated in 1978 than they are today. Maybe that's a, a true statement. Van Arnukirk II, a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he covers politics and policy. Van, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. In 2018, I reported a story for CBS This Morning for the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The little-known story was about a choir from the historically black college, Prairie View A&M University, who had the honor of singing for King just two weeks before his death. We brought several members of the choir back to the Lorraine Motel half a century later. Here's the story. In 1968, while on tour, The choir stopped in Memphis so their bus driver could rest. They checked into the black-owned Lorraine Motel. What do you remember about your trip here to Memphis? The first morning that we woke up at the Lorraine, me and another choir member walking down the street, and then we noticed that the garbage cans were stacked two, three, or four high, and we kept thinking, boy, Memphis sure is a filthy city. And at that time, we didn't realize that the garbage strike was taking place. The Memphis sanitation workers were on strike for a month. Fed up with low wages and dangerous work conditions, they adopted a simple mantra, I am a man. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was in town to support the strike as part of his Poor People's Campaign. He and his staff also stayed at the Lorraine. How many of you knew by a show of hands that Dr. King was staying here? None of us. None of us. None of us. None of you knew that at all. None of us knew. But their choir director did. Dr. H. Edison Anderson implored Dr. King's staff to allow his choir to sing for them. The opportunity came around midnight after King came back from giving an evening speech. The first call came out to me from Dr. Anderson, get everybody up. Dr. King is back. Let's get ready to sing. They don't have to dress. He said, just come on. Don't get dressed. Just come on. What were your thoughts as you walked into the room? It was just an awe of, Mm -hmm. of being in the room with Dr. King. And I think the thing that put a gleam in our eyes and and everything was to know and to wake everybody up, to know that we were going to sing now for Dr. King, our idol. We were in awe. Mm -hmm. It was quiet because we, you know, Dr. King would see him on TV. This is the man that did the I Have a Dream speech. Mm -hmm. We are in the room with, with that same person. My thing was I was trying to find my pitch. I was trying to find my key. And they all did find their key. Singing Alleluia by Randall Thompson to perfection. Just over two weeks later, the tragic news. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. King was killed at the Lorraine Motel. I just remember thinking how sad, how sad for the movement that he had been building. 
you know, what are we going to do at this point? I was angry because they had just killed my hero. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the man who was giving his life to liberating a whole race of people. The members of the choir we spoke to were Judy Lusk, Bob Duckins, Richard Perkins, Joe Barry, Ernestine Ware Odom, and Tom Jones. Lusk summed it up best. She said, we were a part of the movement and it was a very historic night. I'm James Brown, and this is the Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. Dr. Martin Luther King is best remembered for his nonviolent campaign for civil rights here in the United States. But his genius in philosophy, theology, history, economics, and politics were recognized on the global stage when he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. On his way to Oslo, Norway to receive the award, Dr. King stopped in London to give a major address that not only spoke of the civil rights struggle here in the United States, but also drew attention to the horrific practice of apartheid and called for a solution 30 years before the end of white minority rule in South Africa. For 55 years, that speech was lost to the world until it was newly rediscovered by Brian DeShazor, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives. And our struggle for freedom and justice in the United States, which has also been so long and difficult, we feel a powerful sense of identification with those in the far more deadly struggle for freedom in South Africa. Travis L. Atkins is a lecturer of African and Security Studies at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. He is the creator and host of the On Africa podcast. So while many may be surprised at this lost recording of King talking about Africa, I think one of the things that's most important on King Day, and any other day for that matter, is really to break historical figures out of the confined boxes that we have put them in. And so King has in large part been framed as a domestic Christian civil rights leader of the 1950s and 60s, when in fact he actually was an internationalist in his perspective and in his global reach. I mean, when you think about the fact that he's influenced by Mahatma Gandhi. I became deeply influenced by Gandhi, never realizing that uh, I would live in a situation where it would be useful and meaningful. When you think about the fact that the civil rights movement in the United States is happening at the same time as the wave of anti-colonialist movements in Africa, then it should be no surprise that not only was the civil rights movement looking out into the world and seeing what was happening in Africa, in the Caribbean, in Asia, and so forth, uh, but that also those movements were drawing inspiration from the work and the words uh, of Dr. King, specifically in his critique of racial injustice, social inequality, issues of poverty, and again, the idea of him as an anti-colonialist and an anti-imperialist. It is in this situation with the great mass of South Africans denied their humanity, their dignity, denied opportunity, denied all human rights. It is in this situation, with many of the bravest and best South Africans serving long years of prison, in prison, 
with some already executed. In this situation, we in America and Britain have a unique responsibility. Uh, and this is at a time in the world where it was clear, right, that one of the major influences of the 19th and 20th century was European imperialism, European colonialism, and essentially white domination uh, of black and brown peoples in Asia, in Latin America, in Africa. And it was spoken of in that manner. And so he gives this speech in 1964. But it should also be noted that King did attend Independence Day celebration uh, of Ghana uh, in 1957. He also attended the inauguration of the first president of Nigeria in 1960. I just returned from Africa a little more than a month ago, and I had the opportunity to talk with uh, most of the major leaders of the new independent countries of Africa and also leaders in countries that are moving toward independence. And uh, I think all of them agree that uh, in the United States, we must solve this problem of racial injustice if we expect to maintain our leadership in the world and if we expect to serve as a moral voice in a world that is two-thirds color. So he was well-established um, in his connections to the struggles of African people, um, and he spoke scathingly about the uh, apartheid regime um, in South Africa, calling them spectacular savages and brutes, um, calling them barbarians, right? Giving or highlighting on a global stage the injustice, not only that they suffered, but that other African nations were suffering under apartheid, and then going above and beyond that to link them to the struggle uh, of black people uh, in the United States of America. And when you look at South Africa in comparison to the United States, you see several parallels. One is that often people will make a comparison between Jim Crow and apartheid, right? These systems rooted in racial caste, rooted in disadvantaging um, black citizens or second class citizens um, to the advantage uh, of white citizens. But both of these are preceded by centuries of, of oppression where white dominated governments made sure to suppress the justifiable rights and grievances of their black citizens. Apartheid begins in 1948 in South Africa. And when you think about U.S. relations to South Africa at that time, you have to remember the United States was practicing Jim Crow segregation at the same time. And so this notion of a moral argument against apartheid in South Africa would have been not only hypocritical, but in some sense laughable, given that the United States was under the same kinds of practices. And so there was much kind of notoriety about those similarities, even as the U.S. in its rhetoric may have condemned South Africa in some ways. The fact of the matter is that over the course of our history, we maintained close relationships to South African governments in the Cold War era, despite of their horrendous human rights record against black South Africans. And to that point, here is Chet Crocker, former Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs under the Reagan administration on apartheid in South Africa. We had an interest in not permitting the Soviet Union to dictate the future of Southern Africa. I think we have to th reflect back that in the 1970s, the Soviets and the Cubans together 
intervened with massive military force in both Ethiopia and in Angola. So this was the recent precedent. Um, and when you ask about values and interests, we thought it was a value, an important value, to permit the people of the region, the peoples, plural, of the region, to have the chance to shape their own destiny. Ronald Reagan and his secretaries of state were looking at this primarily from a foreign policy point of view until we wound up with the major you know, protests and the disinvestment movement yes. and the sanctions calls and so forth. Exactly. And at that point, uh, the, the domestic politics of Southern Africa and the foreign politics of Southern Africa came together. One of the things that I, I think we'd be remiss not to discuss is really the prophetic nature of King's vision. At the time he's giving his 1964 interview on South Africa. This is a 35-year-old man who begins this idea of really shaming the West for their responsibility um, in continuing to engage with South Africa, continuing to essentially condone the behavior of South Africa for their own geostrategic interests. And he began then to talk about this notion of divestment to talk about the idea of economic pressures and sanctions. For it is we, through our investments, through our government's failure to act decisively, who are guilty of bolstering up the South African tyranny. If the United Kingdom and the United States decided tomorrow morning not to buy South African goods, not to buy South African gold, to put an embargo on oil if our investors and capitalists would withdraw their support for the racial tyranny that we find there, then apartheid would be brought to an end. Even today, in travel throughout Africa from north, south, east to west, you'll find Dr. Martin Luther King hospitals and schools and bridges and highways. And so his legacy is deeply embedded there, that even though we view him as a domestic hero and even in some sense a martyr in our nation, he was in fact a global leader. He was in fact deeply engaged and concerned about Africa and his influence spread far abroad. Travis Atkins is the host of the On Africa podcast. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Day holiday special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Day holiday special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy of peace, love, and nonviolent struggle for civil rights can be examined in so many ways. One is to look at what Dr. King was focused on just before his life came to a sudden and premature end at the age of 39. My colleague Alvin Patrick, a CBS News senior producer, has an interesting perspective. Back in 1992 and 93, as a young producer, he spent several months in Memphis reporting, researching, and interviewing people in the city, essentially reconstructing the last days of Martin Luther King Jr. Alvin, welcome. Let's put things in perspective. What was Dr. King's life like back in the spring of 1968 when he came to Memphis? Thanks for having me, JB. Uh, you know, in the spring of 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. and his civil rights organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, was organizing a poor people's campaign that they planned to have culminate in a poor people's march in Washington, D.C. later that summer. Now, uh, Dr. King had turned his focus onto the gripping poverty that minorities were facing across the country. One must remember that he had already gained 
some of his greatest civil rights achievements by this time. He had burst onto the scene by organizing the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955, of course, and then his famous letter from Birmingham jail and the historic March on Washington, that was back in 1963. Then he helped pass the Civil Rights Act, and he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 64. And then he helped pass the Voting Rights Act and organized the Selma to Montgomery March in 1965. So by the end of 65, he had begun speaking out against the Vietnam War and turning to issues beyond civil rights. Uh, Now, by 1966, he had turned his attention to poverty, especially poverty in the inner cities. And in that year, in 66, he tried to hold a peaceful march in Chicago to protest housing segregation. Uh, But the march turned into a violent riot, and he was hit in the face with a rock. And I think it's fair to say that by 1968, Dr. King's message of nonviolent protest was being challenged by more aggressive civil rights groups like the Black Panthers, the Nation of Islam, the the overall black power movement. And each of them were seeking to win the hearts and minds of young black people. So, Alvin, Dr. King made several visits to Memphis during that time. What brought him there? Well, uh, yes, uh, the city of Memphis uh, became a frequent destination on Dr. King's busy schedule, and he would visit the city three times in March and April of 1968, all on behalf of the city's mostly African-American sanitation workers who were on strike because they were making subsistence wages. They had been on strike since late February. So the first visit was on March 18, 1968. What did Dr. King do on that first visit? March 18, 1968, Dr. King's first visit That was at the invitation of local clergy, namely his friend, the Reverend Samuel Billy Kiles. Uh, Kiles wanted King to give a boost to the sanitation worker strike. So the SCLC team came to town in the midst of organizing their poverty campaign. Uh, The team set up shop at the black-owned Lorraine Motel. King spoke in front of a reported crowd of 10,000 at the Mason Temple, and he became energized. He came back to the Lorraine Hotel after midnight And after some debate with his team, he decided that he would come back to Memphis in order to hold a peaceful march. By the way, you know, that was the midnight meeting that the Prairie View A&M choir sang for him. But the next morning, the SCLC team uh, continued on to Mississippi, where King met with people gripped by poverty in the rural areas outside of Memphis. And what happened when King came back for a second visit to support the garbage workers? Well, you know, his uh, second visit on March 28, 1968, Dr. King and his team wanted to demonstrate peacefully on behalf of those 1,300 sanitation workers. Uh, The march began peacefully with images and placards held by the sanitation workers that were poignant, and, you know, they became very famous um, for these placards. Uh, They were white placards that simply had black lettering that said, I am a man. But unfortunately, some younger activists began breaking windows and confronting police, and the march ended in a riot. And an embarrassed king held a press conference declaring that he would be back to hold a peaceful march someday. So Dr. King would come back at the beginning of April for that last fateful time. When did he return? Well, that now that's April 3rd, 1968. Uh, Dr. King came back to Memphis late afternoon. Uh, Another speech was organized at Mason Temple in the evening. He sent his aides to speak in his place because he was so tired. And it was a stormy, rainy night. 
he assumed that turnout would be low. That's why he sent his aides. But uh, when Ralph Abernathy and some of the other aides got to Mason Temple and realized that the place was standing room only and it was packed, they called King, who was back at the hotel or back at the motel, and told him that he had to come to speak. So Dr. King relented and he delivered his last and arguably best speech. And that's the speech that became known as the mountaintop speech. And he said these prophetic words. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked. And to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats. I talk about the threats that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So Alvin, would you take us through the last day of Dr. King's life, what he was doing? what he was planning. You know, that, that last day, um, that last day on April 4th, 1968 was a very interesting one. The SCLC was planning an evening rally at 8 p.m. But first, King and his aides uh, were getting ready to go to the Reverend Billy Kyle's home for dinner. His wife had been preparing a uh, classic sort of, you know, down-home Southern dinner for them. The synopsis of the last account of uh, King's life was sort of memorialized by the late Reverend Billy Kyles. He died in 2016, but he was the last person that was on the balcony with King. They were running a bit late, and after getting dressed, King went out on the balcony outside of room 306 at the Lorraine Motel at about 5.45 p.m. Uh, King's closest aide, Ralph Abernathy, was in the room getting dressed, uh, Jesse Jackson uh, and a local band leader named Ben Branch 
they were in the parking lot below. Uh, Andrew Young was also in the parking lot below. King was on the balcony with Kyles, and King leaned down over the railing to tease Jackson about not wearing a shirt and tie for dinner. Um, he also asked Ben Brandt to play his favorite song, Precious Lord, later at the evening's rally. Now, Kyles exclaimed to the group, Come on, guys, let's go. We have a rally to go to tonight. So he turned to leave, and that's when Kyles heard the shot. He turned back around and saw that his friend Martin Luther King Jr. was lying on the ground. King's foot was propped on the railing. A large, gaping wound was on the right side of his neck. A pool of blood had already formed around his head, and all the aides came rushing to him. They draped a bedspread from the motel room around him, and they called the police and the ambulance. Um, we all remember the famous photos as they pointed to the area across the street where they thought the gunshot came from. King was pronounced dead later at the hospital, and he was just 39 years old. The Lorraine Motel, of course, has been turned into the National Civil Rights Museum, and King's room, number 306, has been preserved in the exact fashion that it was on April 4th, 1968, at 6.01 p.m., which was the time that he was shot. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. This is the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. More than 50 years after his assassination, the teachings of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. remain incredibly relevant to our political and social fabric today. The Bishop W. Darren Moore joined host Rena Ninan on CBSN to discuss how King's life and legacy continue to impact the world today. Bishop, you know, 50 years after his assassination, do you feel that we've made the progress that Dr. King had pushed for? Well, indeed, Dr. King did push this country as a moral voice to reach a place of racial justice. The fact of the matter is that so much of what Dr. King pushed for remains a challenge even now, 50 years later. Dr. King referred to the three evils of racism, militarism, and poverty. And quite frankly, while there were legislative successes during Dr. King's life, recent studies have indicated that with regard to housing, uh, employment, poverty, uh, education, there still remain major, major areas that need to be addressed. And that's why we rallied today in Washington, D.C. Bishop Moore, you are a church leader. Do, tell me a little bit more about the role that you see the church having in keeping Dr. King's legacy alive. Yes, Rena. What is so important about the church is that we have churches all across this country in every community, suburbs, rural, as well as inner cities. And they become the outposts, if you will, throughout the nation for mobilizing people around the issues of justice and confronting the evils that continue to divide this nation. Unfortunately, too many of our congregations and too many of our mainline churches even still themselves have to struggle with the issue of racism and white privilege. Please be very clear on the fact that 
White privilege is the root out of which racism becomes the fruit. Until we confess the issues of white privilege across this country and literally around the world, we'll never then be able to address the acute issues surrounding racism. You know, it's just remarkable what what the church, particularly the African-American church, has been able to do, not just for faith, but also in politics. What message do you have for folks? It was just remarkable, particularly in the South, to see African-American churches, ministers, taking their parishioners to go and vote on Election Day. When you talk about his legacy, about justice, about the future of this country, what do you want to see these congregations do? What direction do you want to take them in? Absolutely. And this is a call to all congregations. I particularly am a presiding bishop in the AME Zion Church, known as the Freedom Church, because of our role throughout uh, the years in abolition and uh, civil rights. But the mobilization and the voter education of people is central to what it means to have a true democracy in this country. It is tragic that in too many areas across this country, we are pushing back against efforts towards voter intimidation and voter suppression in this country because the voice of the people ought to be valued no matter their racial, religious, or ethnic background. And so the church plays a key role in education and mobilization. The church cannot be partisan, but we must be engaged in in activists to move our people forward. You know, I look um, across his legacy, Dr. King's legacy, and you see these images now, um, black people standing next to white people pushing for change to take this country in a different direction. As an Asian woman, I know that the changes that took place that were pushed for in the 60s and the 70s helped other minorities have certain rights that we really enjoy today. But if there was one thing, Bishop Moore, that you feel we as a society could work out that we haven't quite reached 50 years after Dr. King's assassination, what would that one issue be? I'd say the issue is value gap. If each of us could acknowledge that there still remains in this society a perceived value gap between white lives and black lives. When we say black lives matter, it is only because black lives continue to be devalued and the ongoing issues of unarmed black men being killed through police brutality, the lack of educational resources, and on and on, the issues remain the same, that all lives need to be valued equally. And when that happens, we can then achieve Dr. King's dream of an America where all people can reach their fullest potential. Bishop Darren Moore, thank you very much for joining us, Bishop. Thank you for having me. One of Dr. King's most famous adages urges us to remember If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But by all means, keep moving. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. On April 4th, 1968, as word spread of the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., anguish, grief, and rage spilled into the streets of American cities 
resulting in riots, violence, and chaos. But in one Midwestern city, a call for peace was heard. Robert F. Kennedy, the former United States Attorney General and brother to President John F. Kennedy, was campaigning for the Democratic presidential nomination in Indiana earlier that day. At Ball State University, a black student told Kennedy, you're placing great faith in white America, and then asked the candidate, is that faith justified? Here's Robert Kennedy's response. I think the vast majority of American people want to do the decent and the right thing here within our country. Kennedy's conviction would be tested shortly after that speech as he boarded a plane for Indianapolis. Pierre Salinger, the former press secretary to President Kennedy, had sent word. Martin Luther King had been shot and was not expected to live. Robert Kennedy was visibly shaken by the news and struggled to formulate what he would say to the people who had gathered to hear his speech. When Kennedy landed in Indianapolis, the city leaders were apprehensive. The mayor, future Senator Richard Lugar, had opposed the gathering from the beginning, long before King was assassinated. The police chief, who would be kicked out of office for corruption by Lugar 10 years later, warned Kennedy not to go. Former CBS correspondent and anchor Russ Mitchell reported on what happened that evening in Indianapolis when Bobby Kennedy addressed over a 1,000 African Americans at the rally organized by civil rights icon and soon-to-be congressman John Lewis. For Vichel Rhodes, 40 years have not dulled the memory of growing up in racially divided Indianapolis. I'd say it was worse than it was in Mississippi because you couldn't speak your own mind or tell the truth on how you feel about whatever it is. Nor has his admiration for a young presidential candidate, Robert F. Kennedy, which is why he and hundreds of others were eager to attend a neighborhood campaign rally on April 4th, 1968. A white man coming in this neighborhood, especially the seeking for the presidential, it was a big deal for the black to be in this area. This is a CBS News special report. But hundreds of miles away in Memphis, a tragedy was unfolding. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was shot to death by an assassin late today. We were stopped by the police and advised not to go any further because they were expecting major violence. His speechwriter, Adam Walensky, says Kennedy was cautioned to cancel the rally before news of the assassination spread. Did they know about Martin Luther King? It was obvious that nobody knew, nobody had heard about this. His impulse was, I'm going to talk to these people. I'm going to tell them about what's happened. I have some very sad news for all of you. Kennedy stepped onto a flatbed truck and spoke for only six minutes. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. In Memphis. It was a way that made its way back. People, you know, start saying, no, 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 Martin, you know, Martin. It was a speech that Donald Boggs, director of a new documentary chronicling the event, called both profound and personal. So he could speak from the heart. And so when he says, I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. He doesn't need to mention his brother's name, John. Everybody knows who he's talking about. That night was the only time that I ever heard him mention his brother's death in public. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, 
And this is a difficult time for the United States. It's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country and greater polarization. Black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, I, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own de despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another, feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We're grateful probably that he was here because if he didn't, it would have been just like some most cities, you know, that people just went hell with fires and stuff like that. At least 125 cities in 28 states experienced unrest. In many urban areas, the violence boiled over for almost two weeks. Nearly 50 people died, thousands injured, 21,000 arrested, and millions of dollars in property was destroyed, but not in Indianapolis. Robert Kennedy's speech was the primary reason why there was no violence in Indianapolis. A few people in the crowd tried to ignite a response, but Kennedy's words of peace won out. And while many other tragic events have challenged and stunned the country, the power of Kennedy's message lives on. I can't imagine a politician today speaking to this primarily black audience and saying, yes, say a prayer for Martin Luther King's family, but more importantly... But more importantly, to say a prayer for our own country, which all of us love. When Kennedy stood up on a flatbed of a truck to deliver his speech, 
he had been separated from his entourage by the crowd in attendance who were still uninformed of King's death. He never received the speech his press person had written on a legal pad. Instead, he spoke from his heart in honor of Dr. King and the principle of nonviolence. Nine weeks later, he too would be shot and killed by an assassin's bullet. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Day Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm James Brown. Jackie Robinson became indelibly imprinted in our consciousness as the face of racial integration when he broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball on April 14, 1947. That image, writ large, sometimes obscures the important role Robinson played in civil rights earlier in his life, in the military, and then later in his life after retiring from baseball in 1957. Robinson's civil rights activism made him an ally of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., even though the two icons disagreed sharply on many important issues, including the Vietnam War. But the bond they shared and their commitment to social justice transcended their differences. And as many scholars believe, their admiration and respect for each other changed the course of America's political landscape to this day. Here is the executive producer of the Martin Luther King Holiday Special, Paul Woodhull. Decades ago, African Americans were expected to ride in the back of the bus. One civil rights pioneer decided they were not going to take a backseat to the white people on the bus anymore. That act of civil disobedience launched this civil rights activist on a decades-long career of advocating for African Americans, securing a prominent place in United States history. And that civil rights activist was named Jackie Robinson. It was July 6, 1944, and Lieutenant Jackie Robinson was serving in the Army when he stood his ground and also when he began his relationship with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Here is Professor Michael Long, Associate Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at Elizabethtown College. Almost the second he retired from baseball, Robinson started stumping for the NAACP and was quite vigorous about it. This is right around the same time, 1956, 1957, that King is really making a name for himself as the head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And to that end, Robinson and King would invariably cross paths. Just as Jackie Robinson became identified with the NAACP, Martin Luther King Jr. became synonymous with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Although the two institutions were competitive, the two leaders were not. Here is the author and journalist Shreder Papu, contributor to 42 Today, the enduring legacy of Jackie Robinson, which comes out later this year. This is all happening right around the time that uh, King is making a name for himself uh, as the head of the Southern Christian uh, Leadership Conference. And to that end, Robinson and King would invariably cross paths. This is a, a forgotten chapter in civil rights history about it was not a smooth movement and there were major power players and, and factions all sort of uh, climbing over one another. And yet, um, you know, Robinson was able to sort of overlook the fact that, you know, he was with one organization and, and King was with another. When Jackie Robinson was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in a column for the New York Amsterdam News, Back in the days when integration wasn't fashionable, he underwent the trauma and the humiliation and the loneliness which comes with being a pilgrim walking the lonesome byways toward the high road of freedom. He was a sit-inner before the sit-ins, a freedom rider before the freedom rides. 
This has been the Martin Luther King Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network and produced by the District Productive, Paul Woodhull, Executive Producer. I'm James Brown, praying for peace, justice, and equality. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.